1: Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly Communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring as if knowledge might be vacuum sealed and delivered totally conserved, brain to brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place in time where people meet to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send to receive. It's something we make. I am your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors of research, to editors at journals, to scholars whose work touches or focuses on communication and on how the written word of science makes known the real world we know. My guest today is Catherine Firth. Catherine is head of the Lisa Belair House, the University of Melbourne. She worked at the Latrobe University, establishing there a learning hub across their campuses. Catherine has taught graduate writing across arts and science faculties since 2008 in the UK and in Australia. She has won a university prize for the innovative thesis boot camp at the University of Melbourne. Catherine has co-authored, together with Jean Lehman and Inger Muburn, the book How to Fix Your Academic Writing Trouble, a Practical Guide from 2019, The Open University Press. So let's begin today's episode. Catherine Firth on scholarly communication. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Um, I would like to actually begin a little bit at the book, uh, How to Fix Academic Writing Trouble, and in particular, right at the beginning, beginning, because um, what I found really intriguing about this was why you should buy this book. And this is right at the introduction, and it's certainly one of those things that, you know, genre-wise, you can see in books that are, let's say, you know, guides of sorts. But what was really interesting was this idea that you were arguing for a mimicry to mastery, if I may quote, uh, approach to all of this. So instead of saying, well, this is exactly the steps that somebody may need to do, you were more arguing along the lines of this is the person that you'll need to pretend to become until you do become.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think... It's Cameron um, Thompson who've previously argued that uh, academic writing is identity work, um, and we absolutely believe that you become a scholar by being a scholar, uh, whether that's acting like a scholar or whether that's um, pretending to act like a scholar until uh, until that's that's a comfortable cloak that you just pop on and feels like part of your part of your body. Um, that identity work is is something that we do through writing, um, and often is the place. Writing is often the place where we feel like an imposter uh, until we feel like we've mastered it.
1: That's really great because I mean I think that um, work from Thompson also brings us out to the level of abstraction that we need to be able to help people who are you know completing their PhD or perhaps already even publishing in in postdoc position where the struggles in academic writing are, usually at their highest, although they tend to persist through very many people's careers as well, but we'll leave that for now. Um, so this beginning stage well, of- sol- Except
0: for the fact that writing is troubling. I mean, that's that's why we called the book Academic Writing Trouble, is that writing should be hard because you're creating new knowledge. You're arguing that other people's concept of the universe is wrong to some extent uh, and that we need to change how we understand the world. Um, so, you know, if, if, you're, if you aren't troubled in the writing, if the writing doesn't cause you trouble, you're probably not pushing at the edges of knowledge. Um, and that, that's actually something that, uh, yeah, so we, we can come back to it, but I, I also do think that, yes, it does, it does persist and it should persist because academic writing is expanding the known world.
1: Yeah, very much so. I, th- I think you touch upon something really important there. Because I mean, what I was drawing attention to is this identity side that you um, were referring mm. to with the mimicry and, and mastery. But on the action side, the writing as an act, um, in, in very many areas of, of, of life, I mean, if you think of creative writing, or now scientific writing, or act more generally perhaps academic, you're entirely right. I mean, this is really tough writing, which is you know, if it's not challenging you, then you may just be putting puzzle pieces that were reshaped and pre-shaped for you into some places where people expected them to be. And that's, you know, that's not going to be highly cited work. That's not going to be, you know, groundbreaking, uh, the next groundbreaking memoir or whatever it might be. Right. Um, so, yeah, totally. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, and this is yeah, this is the other side to it. I mean, some people feel that, you know, well. Hey there's so many things going on in my mind. Let's let's follow up with what you just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: let's, let's, let's let's go back into what you were going no, to No no no, actually
1: let's just carry right on with what what, what you what you've brought <laughs> up there because uh, this is I think really where some of the problem comes as to how writing is trained or taught at earlier levels mm. because the, the the view is is that, you know, you can kind of close out the skill set, you know, as if it was you know, let's say equivalent to the way that you navigated your department building to get to your laboratory, just to take
0: a silly example, right? Absolutely. There's a literacy version of writing, which is really by the time you finish primary school, you should be able to read, and by the time you finished high school, you should be able to write. Uh, And if you can't write, then you're not good enough to be in the university, as if the writing skills that you need for this kind of groundbreaking work Isn't on a totally different level. Um, Yeah, but there's a sort of assumption that this is a tick box thing. If you've got your IELTS score, that's good enough. If you, you know, finished school and, and got a good enough reading and writing score, then you know how to write.
1: No, don't get me started on an oh aisle. <laughs> that's, right? that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a totally different topic. I, that one I'm really going to leave because, I mean, it's, it's, it's really one of those yeah, let's pieces put
0: that of. Outside the sky. <laughs> well,
1: actually, mm-hmm. I mean, just so listeners who are like, well, what's this problem? I mean, essentially, it, it really doesn't tell you very much about the English that you're going to be using, or, um, you know, a snapshot of that sort is telling you nothing about yourself and your skills and thinking um, that I find of any worth when it comes to, you know, academia or science. Um, I don't know if, if those are the problems that I would, I
0: would agree. (laughs) I would also feel that, um, bizarrely people who score well on the IELTS test and therefore, you know, have competency in English, um, often don't come to academic writing, feeling competent. So it doesn't give them any confidence in their ability to write well, even though actually they have just as, they often have more tools in their toolbox than native English speakers, particularly, who are often monolingual, have often never learnt any formal grammar, have often never had any kind of um, thought about like how a sentence fits together or any of these things. And they sort of, there's this feeling of deficit Um, that people even people who've done well in the IELTS or who have good uh, English as a second or further language um, there's nonetheless this real feeling that they're sort of starting on the back foot there's no evidence that second language speakers do worse in passing PhDs uh, do worse in you know getting published Um, people sometimes make more snarky comments but you know they can absolutely succeed. So I, I also, I also have a, a problem with it because I don't think it does what it is supposed to do on the tin. Um, no, and, and and I think what
1: it what it focuses on is it, it focuses on a, on a sort of formalism. I think that might partially mm. explain the, the the this lack of confidence that you're talking about amongst you know the the multilingual um, scholars or multilingual students. Because I mean, if what you're Getting tested on—I mean, just the idea of a test is already problematic. For me, but if what, what you're getting tested on is how well you do, you know—I mean, you're really seeing how correct it is. And of course, then the whole view goes to, yes, yeah, essentially clausal features. And I mean. It, you're right. Explicitly, those students may be very good at all of that and could talk about it at length at a, in a way that you know a L1 user never could. But the L1 user's advantage is not there. The L1's user's advantage, I would argue, is, is, is their functional approach to language, that they have it as a use object. And I mean, that's one of those things that I find myself, I help, as my listeners will know, I, I help scientists write. That's one of those things that I find myself focusing on when I'm helping them publish is that here you've got this, you know, textual capacity in front of you, make use of it. That's the thing. Because very often the view is how do I do it right?
0: Well, and you can't do it right. We're talking about knowledge that hasn't existed before. We're talking about uh, really specific Different, you know, when you're publishing in journal X, you need to use these features of, of kind of making it work and talking to this audience. Whereas when you're publishing in journal Y, uh, you're talking to a totally different audience. You need to use a whole totally different use of, uh, of features because um, I think the point that you're making and uh, something that I've been thinking a lot about recently is how writing is a technology, it's not language. Writing is a is a way for us to build a sort of transfer of, well, I, I think you said it better in the introduction to your point, it's a way of building a sort of mechanism to carry something of what I'm starting to understand about the world uh, over to you so that you can also start to understand what it is that I know and then totally disassemble it and build it in a different way to help you do your research so it's just yeah it's it's a completely we're not asking people to write a perfect essay that we can then mark out of a hundred we're asking people to tell us about what they know which is really different
1: yeah very much so and, and in fact i would go totally along with this technology approach i mean the systemic functional view which which i sort of propose as as, as mm-hmm. a very f- useful tool amongst uh, people who work together with uh, text is this, uh, or language in any way, meaning (laughs) I keep going broader, (laughs) but, but, but the point is, is um, this, this idea of form calling out that, Hey, language is actually, you know, multi-parted and what we've got is at least speech and text. And I think the view taken when it comes to a foreign language or any language really is the speech view, which in our context of, you know, mm. academic writing, scientific writing is not the right view. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, 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 the sorts of things that you mm. want to do in speech and, and the way that you feel you've succeeded in speech or all of the language classes that most anyone has had a- across the world are speech-oriented. So this idea of correctness and so on, which goes along with speech, none of that applies to what we're doing here in academic writing. I mean, w- what you've described as creating new knowledge, I mean, that, that, that puts an entirely different set of pressures upon the form and requires of the writer an entirely different set of ca- capacities.
0: And what's brilliant is that it doesn't matter what your first language is is um, if you know this stuff, you can think about how to explain it to me and that's really your first job. Um, and everything after that is just style um, and that's both uh, the most important thing and the least important thing and we can kind of get into that if you'd like to. Um, but the, the main job of do I, have I done my research? Do I understand the field? Do I understand the concepts? Do I know what I know? You can do that. Every researcher has that knowledge um, and it is from that base of expertise that they start to speak, that they start to write, uh, that they start to communicate to other people. And I think that's, that's something that, I'd like more people to kind of be like, yes, that's true. I do know this stuff. I'm the person who knows this. Nobody else in the world knows this. Oh, nobody else in the world knows this. Let me uh, explain this to you uh, so that you can know this too.
1: Yeah this 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 is definitely worth unpacking. <laughs> and, and and maybe I'll unpack it also slightly in the frame of where I was going about 10 minutes ago. I mean this this
0: <laughs> but this is good though. This is great. Right?
1: <laughs> I I did say as we were talking ahead of time a rolling discussion and and my listeners expect this. I think this is I mean if they come back this is what they they're they're looking for. Um the the idea of the the trouble as academic writing just being as an act challenging because it's knowledge creation which is part of what you're referring to right now this persists okay but we've got this other issue which you know you you expand upon brilliantly there in the beginning of your book academic writing trouble this i identity, uh, for lack of a better word, I'll call it mini identity crisis. You know, this is what the person's going through. I mean, so if we've honed in just for a moment on that early career area, so from masters up through maybe postdoc is what I'm imagining, you know, potentially Mm -hmm. a 10 year span, depending on the field. There the person is going through something. And I mean, this, this compacts and compounds, of course, with just the trouble even of creating new knowledge. And suddenly writing seems to be like this massive problem or it's just always hard and of course then you know if you're not an l1 user of english you know the first culprit is the language and this gets confirmed again and again sources which i respect highly and have learned so much from nature for example the nature careers uh, section have run a series Mm -hmm. of articles over the past two years about how you know, non native speakers, as they say, I mean, just the terminology that they use, I find always problematic, Mm. even just speaker, right? I mean, it's, it points exactly to the problem we were talking about. Um, You know, they say that they are at a disadvantage and so on. And I, you know, I haven't come up with a cogent argument to answer that yet. But I just feel that what you're saying right now, and the two problems we've pointed out, you know, the trouble in the act and the, and the identity problem in the person are actually pointed to deeper, rooted issues, the ones that really matter?
0: I think so. And I think one of the things that's really interesting uh, in the way you framed those uh, stages of, you know, that you bookended this kind of period of growth from master through to postdoc, what we're talking about is a time when you went from being a non-master uh, in the English-speaking uh, academic world, you are a bachelor, which is a an unmarried man, a a person who is not a child, but not yet, uh, you know, in the medieval sense, because all our university terms are medieval. Um, so this is not in any way a, a recommendation for you know, for for real life, but uh, in this current age, but a, a person who had not yet taken on family responsibilities. So uh, that sort of early. Early manhood, um, that bits behind you, and you become a master. So you move into through your master's degree, but then in the doctorate you change your name. Um, I am, you know, in the same way you do when you say get married if you're a woman, um, not if you're a man because you know, hello patriarchy. Um, but it's it's as as distinct a life stage as. You know, something like that, where you you change your name. Your my credit card says Dr. Catherine Firth. Um, you know, like that, thats my identity. So your PhD, actually, or, or your your doctorate, um, changes your name. It changes your identity. And then as you become, as you step into that, so as you are doing your doctorate, you are sort of working towards this moment. And then the postdoc is that moment where you are sort of trying to step into this new identity as a peer of your academic heroes, you get to peer review them, they get to peer review you, so you are an equal to these experts um, and you sort of have to live up to this this name, this new name that's that's all over everything that sort of somehow claims that you are a world expert, you're a doctor, um, it's huge. Uh, and so we've got this kind of, this this stage where the ways we talk a breeze also map these uh expectations about changing uh who you are in terms of how much you know and how much other people should listen to you um and that's kind of scary (laughs)
1: I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, when, when, when you frame it that way with this change in identity, it's really fascinating because it shows how much, you know, who you are or who you're becoming matters as opposed to, which is what I think very many people do focus on in that stage or expect it to be about as, you know, what you're able to do or what it is that you're supposed to know. I mean, because I think when you get to the cutting edge of research, which is what brings us to that second part, this, this trouble in writing, mm. is that, you know, it's more about the fact that everything's a little bit in flux and there's loose ends and nobody can, you know, it's about argument more than about facts.
0: I think one of the things that people expect, I expected to finish my PhD uh, and know everything, Um, And I, in fact, finished my PhD and realised how much I didn't know. Uh, The time when I felt that I knew the most in the whole wide world was when i just finished high school. 18, super smart, uh, just got a scholarship to Cambridge. I knew everything. Um, And then I started to learn more and realised increasingly how much more knowledge there was uh, than I will ever be able to cover in a lifetime. Um, and so that's both humbling, uh, but it's also scary, uh, and then eventually, I think it's liberating, um, but but the first part of it was very. Uh, was very downcasting because I was looking forward to knowing everything plus uh, by the end of my PhD and that's not what happened to me
1: (laughs) Well just think of also in your environment um, and I mean it's a nice example and an example I think that very many scholars will look back on and and, and identify with but in your environment uh, around that high school age of yours the older let's say more senior sorts of students or, or the teachers that you might have had, professors at that point, then, in and, and what they were seeing, you know, not that they were like looking down upon you, but they they, they ah, she's going through that phase, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that that's probably what's I think that's probably what's happening with you know like mid career researchers looking. At the work or the way of work or the way of being of their postdocs or even their PhDs in the lab. I, I often say lab because I think in scientific terms, I mean, I, I work together with scientists, mm-hmm. but it, it applies throughout academia. There's different settings, yeah. but, um, but nonetheless, they, they you know, and, and, and that's part of the reason why this podcast is here is to make these things transparent and to say them because th- this is happening. Right. You know, a mid-career researcher or more senior researcher, a PI in a lab in, in, in science is seeing these identity changes occurring amongst their researchers in the group. And yet it's not necessarily always brought out that way. A good mentor will bring that out. We'll 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 talk about that and so on. But. You know, Mm -hmm. for every good mentor, I think there's very many other researchers, PIs and so on who who may be great at their work, but, you know, these people themselves weren't trained to, weren't readied to do this sort of stuff. I mean, I've had computer scientists tell me, you know, hey, I didn't get into this line of research to, you know, become a leader or a mentor or a coach or anything. You know, I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. they're, they're interested in the computer science and they should be.
0: I think that's absolutely true. And I think that that's true both for uh, the personal development and the writing development, um, that we have this model of uh, doctoral supervisor who is supposed to be able to teach you everything, teach you everything about your discipline, teach you everything about how to navigate through uh, publication, um, conferences, who to Like being polite to because they're vicious, and who to like, who's actually going to be really helpful to you, Um, you know, who's going to be, but also is going to help you communicate in successfully in written form uh, and also going to help you communicate well in uh, spoken form who's going to help you uh, work well with them as a PI and work well with the other people uh, in the lab or in the research group uh, or in your more sort of loosely formed discipline group you know like how do I how do I do how do I get funding how do I and we need all of this to sit with one or maybe two people um, in a group, that's that's really, and they weren't trained to do that, um and that's kind of why people like me, you write books like I do, um, because we found that the other trouble that I guess we kind of about is where those that communication between people who have moved, you know, they're really interested in the technical stuff, they're really good at getting published, they don't quite know why they were good, but they they succeeded. Uh, were lucky with grants, they had a good mentor, whatever it was, uh, and they are now uh, supervising candidates, they're now running uh, labs and research groups, uh, and now they have to give all of this feedback and they may be really good at it and they may not be. Um, And so that's kind of how we structured how to fix your academic writing trouble was around typical feedback that people like, my supervisor keeps saying this. I have no idea what it means. And when I ask them, they have no way to explain it. And we're like, okay, we could write a book about that.
1: And you have, and it <laughs> and it does elucidate precisely <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> no, it really does. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, and in a sense, it's kind of, um, to bring us back to that issue of, you know, is English the problem? It, it's funny it's an it's a it, from this view it's a sort of translation book you know from English into English right mm. <laughs> you know wh- whoever that supervisor may happen to be um, and whatever their background is they're saying these things you know you even have quotes in the book as to you know they say the, the, the structure there's something wrong with the structure or whatever it doesn't sound academic right and and you unpack that over you know the course of an entire chapter or, or a subheading in a chapter and and say this is what they're very likely pointing to. And here's your fix. These are the things to operate on so that you can get it to sound more academic so that you can improve the structure and so on. And and yeah, it's it's, it's wonderful because I mean, in that sense, it, it does translate, doesn't it?
0: It's absolutely a book of translation. Um, And the, our favorite feedback that we get from uh, people who've read it is people who say, this book saved my relationship with my supervisors. My supervisors were, were giving me feedback. I was trying to trying to unpack, trying to understand what they meant. I thought they meant X, so I was doing a whole lot of X and that wasn't what they wanted. And now when I have your book, I basically have a glossary um, and so I can work out what it is that they're saying to me and then I can try that and then they're like, oh, yes, that's better. Uh, And then the next step, and then we can actually speak uh, the same language to one another, um, whether that language is uh, English to English uh, or whether that language um, is just sort of more experienced researcher to less experienced researcher. Um, We have people who um, aren't being supervised in English who nonetheless say this is a useful book to translate because it's about translating concepts and translating ways of thinking about writing and that's that's really helpful
1: you you unpacked just a few moments ago brilliantly and i'd like to get get back into that because it's also so relevant about this this (laughs) like supervisee supervisor type relationship um this idea that the supervisor is asked to do a lot and i know from firsthand experience that in the natural sciences and formal sciences—that this is very much the case, right? This PI position is—it's <clears throat> amazing what gravitates towards it and what must uh, revolve and orbit around it. I mean, it's—it's it's so much that a PI is expected to do. You know, I mean, as you were saying, you know, bringing <clears throat> the researchers through as people, helping them navigate political landscapes, obviously giving them disciplinary content, helping them to be able to communicate. The list goes on. Um, I, I'm beginning to, to think that, you know, it doesn't only just feel like too much, it actually is too much. And my, yes. my, and my, and my, my feeling is that therefore it's sort of one of the, just, just these logical syllogisms there, therefore more training, the right kind of training needs to be put in place around the PI sort of attached to the research group. Again, I, I continue on in, in the scientific uh, mm. context. I imagine, though, that this is familiar enough for, for you to be to be, you know. I think we, I think
0: we can we can all guess we can we can sort of map that across. Uh, Wonderful. In, okay, in good. Then, wise. if that's yeah. the case,
1: um, and and, and, and one of and one of those sort of additions or augmentations, I'd prefer to call it, is that I say, you know, what we really need then is, you know, a, your your book in the form of a person (laughs) at an institute amongst the research groups so that this translation can happen also inside of the actual publication and and writing that's going on at that
0: institute. Absolutely. So one of the reasons that we... We came together to write this book is because each of the three of us, so Inga at ANU, uh, Sean at ANU, and then later uh, in other universities in Sydney, uh, me at various universities in Melbourne, uh, we were all doing this work and we realised that that we were needed uh, in so many rooms that we couldn't be in. So we we wrote this book to kind of support uh, that conversation beyond us but also this book is really generic. We give advice for, for science, technology, engineering and maths. We do give advice for uh, humanities, arts and social sciences. We do give advice for creative writing uh, PhDs but like STEM is huge and has multiple disciplines within it and multiple writing, uh, styles. And, you know, even within people who are doing lab based research, there's so much variation. And so when, um, so we have this kind of generic advice that you can put in a book, but what you really need is people embedded in research groups, embedded in faculties, embedded in specializations because, how you talk about something is really different, and how you get published is really different, and how um, how you you know all these questions about should you use the passive voice, and do we use I, and how long is a journal article, and how do I depl- deploy knowledge, and all of these things—they are really different, even within those kind of big buckets of STEM and has and creative practice. Um, And so you really need specialists who specialize in communication, but the communication of the specialism. Uh, And I think that there should just be so much more of that because it's so important and it really augments the skills of the rest of the group.
1: Yeah, and it's 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 I have to say firsthand, it's a wonderful career for somebody who's done you know linguistic work or maybe even just English studies or modern languages, right? If you if you're fascinated about how language can be used, uh, I know I myself am just fascinated by what you know english does in the world Mm -hmm. it just it just blows my mind again and again every day and and if you you know are looking for a career if you're somebody like that and you have that sort of background i mean these are the sorts of backgrounds where people say oh you know what's that going to turn into well i mean the publishing machinery and the studying machinery of stem just alone right is massive and growing I mean, the numbers are there. Just in the past 20 years, the amount of publication and the amount of researchers are just exponentially going through the roof. And in my opinion, just as you said, in fact, I've used that word, embedded editor, I've often called it, you know. I mean, but an Mm. editor with a training component in his or her um, pack,
0: because of the fact that... in the proper editor sense, that is a person who contributes not just you know commas and spelling but cuz that's a copy editor but somebody who helps shape the writing but you were saying I interrupted you
1: no uh, this this is entirely uh, relevant what you're saying i mean this is uh, yeah yeah an editor in in a broader sense i've always been looking for a word in fact the word i've hit upon has been textition <laughs> kind of like Ooh. lab technician. Um, uh, b- but, uh, yes, no, it is editing and it is editing in that broader sense. Like if you, you know, think back to, you know, the 1950s and sixties and like the Paris review type editors where, you know, they went on long lunches and they knew each other and you know, the, the, the the novel of the chapter sort of grew out of that and stuff. You know, I'm thinking of an editor indeed who you know needs to personally engage with every separate researcher on their own mm-hmm. separate terms, because uh, as 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 we've said, right, this is an identity thing as well. You know, you're you're not just editing text; you're editing people.
0: Absolutely, um, and in fact, in creative writing, uh, particularly in fiction writing, editors still do that. Editors will give the kind of structural feedback uh, that you would expect from a supervisor. Uh, that is really normal that your editor co-develops your novel with you. Um, whereas, yes, it, often we think of editors as having these very limited roles, but but that's still the case Uh the creative writing, that the editor has this huge intellectual uh, contribution uh, to the piece. And I I think thinking of ourselves as editors uh, in that more expansive sense can really help writers see that there are people you could go and talk to uh, about the challenges of writing, not because your writing is bad and you need to be fixed or corrected, but because your writing is troubling or uh, challenging or you want to explore something new in through your writing uh, and that that person is the person who can help you unlock
1: that yes Uh, i mean the trouble is 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 a wonderful word for it you know i mean it's not because it's incorrect it's because it's troubling just as it should be and Mm. you know i mean one of the best pieces of feedback that i've gotten over the years that i've been doing this um, at universities here in germany is that my presence gives an address to communication in science at that institute mm-hmm. or in that in that department and and it's like a a person slash place to turn to and of course that person ultimately remains the PI right this is the last author on these mm-hmm. these papers but I return again to this idea that you know it's it's not happening enough I mean every PI will exp- you know complain that, you know, they want to actually do more of the editing, right? They can't, it's, mm. it's, it's it's too fast, there's too many people, there's too much going on. And it just leads to, you know, unnecessary tension and stress and not enough training, which is why I say, you know, as, as we started off this, this, this vein in the, in the discussion, the research training needs to be somewhat rethought. And, and this would be one of my, let's say, humble solutions. Mm, I, I absolutely
0: agree. And I think that one of the things that I find really interesting um, in research training is that uh, this feeling of deficit is often also a feeling that PIs have, either around lack of uh, specific technical knowledge about writing, or about lack of time, or um, a sense that you know they like they know good writing when they see it, but. If the writing isn't good, all they can say is it's not good. Uh, They can't kind of fix the writing. Um, And so I often find that I give the same tools to emerging researchers as I do to supervisors, and both of them are like, oh, I can see how I would use this tool to... Um, open up a text or to build a new layer of text or to you know, unlock uh, another level in, in how we're making this text work, uh, which is why the front uh, image on this book uh, is a sort of Swiss Army knife of um, pens and erasers and paper clips. And, and we thought very hard about that image, uh, but that's the image that we're kind of doing is, is, is tooling up um, PIs because they're busy. Uh, and what they need is a pocket full of multi-use tools, but really what they need, uh, and much better than a book, uh, is an expert who has a toolkit uh, of their own that they can uh, then bring and share uh, and um, upskill everybody in the department. It's, yeah. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of
1: life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I, I love the image, and I love the fact that it's brought back in throughout the text with this metaphor of the Swiss army knife. Um, And yeah, I mean, this, this, this book stands in for in print form, the idea that, as I said, you know, I would, I would. Sort of uh, endorse for person form, if you like. But 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 let's let's also get con concrete in in your own vast experience in this area. Um, you know, for over ten years, you've been uh, <laughs> working closely in the area of graduate writing. Um, you've 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 helped establish a, a learning hub, for instance, at uh, La Trobe. You've you've won awards for your thesis bootcamp, uh, bring us into some of your uh, professional experience with maybe anecdotally, however you like an illustration or two of some of these more high level concepts that we've been talking about, just so that our listeners can really get their hands on, on some of the way that this might actually play out for somebody.
0: Yes, absolutely. So yeah, um... Thesis Bootcamp is a three-day writing intensive. Uh, The name uh, is meaner than the reality. Uh, In reality, we get you in a room for two and a half days. Uh, So Friday night, usually a Saturday and a Sunday, we give you lots of food. We give you a quiet place uh, to write uh, and we give you... a breakout space to socialise with other people uh, and we give you the chance to talk one-on-one with a person who's not your supervisor uh, and therefore uh, you can talk about uh, anything and I'm in no way uh, wedded to the fact that I don't care if you're a qualitative or quantitative researcher, I don't care if you uh, take uh, the side of Smith or Jones, I don't care if you really prefer supervisor two to supervisor one, right, none of that's part of, of what we we talk about uh, and you've got a chance to have a chat uh, with people like us. The other thing that we recommend uh, at Thesis Bootcamp is that you write with abandon, that you have a safe place to just let all of the knowledge in your head out onto the page uh, in a sort of gush of generative writing. This is not the only way that you should write. You should, in fact, uh, not do this particularly often, but as a first draft of that stuff that you've got, especially for late-stage candidates, there's often a lot in their head. They just need to kind of let it out, uh, and that's something that we recommend. But we also recommend that you come and talk to us about the things that uh, that are really troubling you. And so, for example, um, one of the places that we – often find there's real challenges uh, is in how people use evidence is how do you make a case for what you know and why is true um an awful lot of phd students now for example are doing interdisciplinary research which is fantastic uh, but it's often really at least half of your research, you know, if you're taking just two disciplines, half of what you're doing is completely incomprehensible to the supervisor who's a chemist, and the social science bit is completely incomprehensible to them. But the social science supervisor is completely at sea when you talk about the chemistry. So, how do you translate? How do you understand how each of those fields uses evidence? And then, how do you translate uh, across? Um, But also how do you then move in the way that you write from seeing yourself as the person who your supervisors know more than you? Uh, Very quickly, you will start to know more than your supervisors, at least about the little bit of the project that you're that's that's your focus. Um, how do you start to realise that you need in your writing to explain the answers to them? You can't just stick with your research question for three years. You need to move from having your research question to having an answer. And often people have kind of never talked about that and had a space for that. So you know, we, I, I will ask, what is your what is your answer? You've told me what your research questions are. What are your answers for it? I might stand at a whiteboard. And they talk to me and I write it down. And then at the end of it, uh, sometimes I give them advice, but frequently I just go, that looks like a research answer to me. And they're like, yeah. Uh, and I'm like, is that, is that the argument to your thesis? And they're like, well, I think that is. I'm like, "Then take a photo of it, <laughs> they do. <laughs> I'm like, go off and write it. It's just, it's often just about having somebody listen without judgment because um, candidates are smart, Daniel, aren't they? right? Like these are smart oh, yeah. people.
1: <laughs> Obviously. They yeah, I mean
0: no stuff, right? But they, they spend so much of their time feeling like they can't kind of stumble their way through a first draft.
1: But this is this is it's funny. the theme of this discussion has has become now this idea of you know the trouble of writing and the identity trouble. Um, you know, there was Judith Butler's gender trouble. Well, there's identity trouble mm-hmm. in academia, and uh, it, those those two seem to be you know very much at the core. I, I, I love the the scenario you just you know depicted for us there at the thesis boot camp because it's kind of like my daily bread, you know I mean you, you talk about <laughs> listening, somebody listening. you know I've, I've I've said to a number of people who have asked me, you know well, like at core, what is it that you're doing? and I, and I often just say, well, I listen, you know I, I just sit there it's- and I listen.
0: Well, and that was precisely what um, we were trying to do when we were setting up the learning hubs. Uh, so at La Trobe, uh, when we started this project, undergraduates could go and talk to a peer uh, student uh, who was a learning peer learning advisor, um, or they could talk to their... Uh, but they couldn't go and talk to uh, a sort of an expert uh, from the library, from language learning uh, or from academic skills. And so we, we brought all of these people together uh, and we said, if you would like to talk to one of these people, you just make an appointment and rock up and sit down uh, and someone will listen to you and then help you to um unlock those skills for yourself but the ability to be listened to i think is really undervalued in the modern university that we talk about listening to students but what we mean is we've sent them a survey um (laughs) students are supposed to listen to (laughs) experts (laughs) (laughs) which is is really
1: the opposite of listening isn't it
0: (laughs) oh my goodness right yeah don't, don't don't talk to me tick a few boxes and then i'll aggregate you uh and as long as your your um, opinions are popular enough we might we might roll that into our next strategic plan um but really what we should be doing is sitting down with someone on one um and saying so what do you think and then being quiet for long enough for them to go hmm, mm, well I'm not really not sure, but I guess if I, I guess if I was having a go, I'd kind of start to suggest and then they're off and you're like, that was brilliant. Um, so when I was, even when I'm working with undergraduates, um, which I used to do in academic skills, um, I would often make notes as they were talking. And then at the end of it, I'd tear it off my sheet, of my pad and say, this is what you said. That was brilliant. Go away and write about that. And they'd look at it written down and they'd be like oh oh I'm, I'm smart after all and they really are um and when we listen they have a chance to feel smart yeah. um and i wish there was more of that and more people who could do that in the world
1: yeah i mean uh, this this is kind of exactly i think the the sort of work or a a big part of the sort of work that we should be doing in research training to actually help in the communication. And I I think that let's say I have a bit of a theory as to why some of it is not happening. I mean, there's all kinds of problems in the way. I mean, the survey (laughs) example that you give is is clearly an administrative systemic kind of problem, but I think there's also rooted, let's say, even in a research group culture, a problem that is more disciplinary or um, let's say knowledge-based. And that is the misconception that, you know, if you have a handle on the technical side, if you're well within the details of, you know, molecular biology or machine learning, computer science, and so on, that
0: mm-hmm.
1: talking about it or thinking about it is, let's say, you know, literally like just drawing an arrow over to the product. As if, you know, there was a direct line right over to, you know, any sort of product that need you know, a talk, a presentation, a paper, a few notes and so on. And that is precisely what I, I disagree with. Because it's, it's Yeah, go on.
0: Oh, well, I was going to say this is this is actually exactly what we're thinking about at the moment. So we're, we're just proposing a second edition of How to Fix Your Academic Writing Trouble to our publishers. And one of the things that we want to uh, include in the new book is is thinking about uh, the question of generative AI, uh, which is, I think, for many, many people are imagining that what that's going to do is enable us to just draw that straight line. I've got the knowledge. blump it gets spat out as a sort of communication object with no sort of let the computer do the work because it's, it's not uh, intellectual work. It's not judge critical judgment. It's not identity work. It's not human to human work. It's just, you know, if we just press a button, um, that's how it should be working anyway. And now the computers will actually do it. And, of course, that's that's not correct um, either. In And it never will be that way, AI right? You know, I mean, <laughs> it can't, I mean, yes. It,
1: it, it can't for two reasons. I mean, the first reason is, at least in the large language model approach uh, to generative mm. AI, it's only you know running, let's say, statistical weights of you know values probabilities and so on so that this this has nothing to mm. do with thinking but on the other hand if if and this is the writing trouble you know this really is a motif in our t- discussion today the mm-hmm. writing trouble issue is as you say you know generative in an entirely different sense right you're making new knowledge yes. and therefore there is no tool to turn to you know the best technology we have is your own brain and you can afford your brain of a memory skill which is text that is you know wonderful at keeping things in place but it- it's still your mind which needs to work through all of this. Uh, it, Absolutely,
0: it, that it is thinking. That writing is thinking. There we go. Um, <laughs> we, we've said it. <laughs> it's funny that there's
1: <laughs> no. It's funny that there's people who actually disagree with that. You know, I mean, there's a long tradition in in composition and rhetoric in in America mm-hmm. where people have been, you know, found that that was discriminatory or somehow simplificating or whatever it might be, and. That always troubled me because I felt like that is really what's going on. You know, it's truth is beauty, beauty is truth. Writing is thinking. You know, there's a couple others, right? But that's
0: that's a yeah, well, one and, and and there's other ways of thinking. So it's not that writing is the only form of thinking, but academic writing is thinking writing, um, and that's why we um, that's why we uh, develop as researchers by producing a thesis, a dissertation a series of journal articles that we we track your intellectual development through what you are able to put on the page uh, and then assess it but also that that kind of that we learn through the writing of others that by reading other papers that's how i come to understand a field it's how i come to understand new knowledge it's how i come to grapple with new theory uh, and so the thinking both as we upload our brain into text, uh, there is there is thinking work, but also as I decode uh, what it is, I think you've written uh, into my worldview, into my research interests. Um, there's also thinking. There's also judgment happening. There's also reshaping. Um, I'm always very interested in the work of uh, Deserto. Um, I've just been grappling with his ideas about reading as poaching, uh, reading as kind of somehow picking and choosing, uh, of travelling across text, you know, that readers readers have agency, as do writers, that there is all of this choice happening. Uh, and I think that's so interesting when people come together making choices uh, and making exchanges. I think that's that's what... A knowledge exchange truly is. Uh, it's not press a button, and your brain is somehow uploaded into the sky. And one day somebody might cite it, and then you might get an H factor.
1: Well, this this uh, th- then I'm going to actually uh, follow through on, on when I was talking there about um, this idea of you know the technical details. Just sort mm. of you can draw that arrow over, and and you have the product immediately. I mean, the thing that I wanted to uh, bring up there uh, two people with whom I, I work closely with, uh, Mary Kalantzis and Bill Cope, have, have have written about this. They've they've called this process that you've just described th- this wonderful up and download. I, I, I like I like the image um, um, participation, and mm-hmm. I think that I think that that you know as a replacement for communication as a as, as a putting communication in its place because they break it down quite simply into these three areas of work when you're participating just in the way that you said yeah the, 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 that you have hmm. the representative side you know you're in your mind and then you upload that's the communication it's in making available of what it is that you've mm-hmm. been able to come up with and then there's the download which they call interpretation which They also say, well, this is complicated. It's really re-representation. So it's it goes that far as Mm -hmm. to be then the next step in a further participatory process. So, you know, the two ends, you know, what people talk about, this communication, is literally, you know, very often a physical object. It's it's a digital composition, or Mm -hmm. it may even still in some places be paper you know <laughs> but that's not mm-hmm. that's not the way it very much <laughs> is today you know but in any case it has an object sort of character about it and just mm. to throw in another term i've i've been proposing now for some time on this podcast this idea of scientific reading i mean mm. you know reading gets reading in our circles gets just entirely over i mean if writing is simplified then reading just gets ignored right <laughs> you know it's a small yes yeah uh,
0: yeah, so um, that was one of the reasons why uh, in my newest book, Writing Well and Being Well, uh, for your PhD and beyond, uh, I break down writing into a cycle. Uh, I do a, a sort of simplified version in How to Fix Your Academic Writing Trouble, but I kept expanding it because, you know, no no idea is ever finished. Uh, but the first stage of the cycle is reading and thinking um, because reading is – an intensely uh, essential part of writing and it's not just reading like having your eye over things and comprehending it the critical judgment learning conceptualization you know really complex participation as, as you're saying uh, about about that stage of reading because yeah reading reading really needs to be valued so much more highly and on that
1: note of, of valuing, I, I mean, one of the things that I like to do uh, for people, particularly in your position, really any position, also researchers themselves who um, I speak to very often on this uh, mm-hmm. podcast, you know, researchers, I mean, in STEM, and I, I'll interview them and ask them about their own communication, but but a professional like yourself, I, I like to make sure that there is here at, at the close an opportunity for you to speak almost from a platform in a sense of hey what is it that we need to be doing so that people's studying and also perhaps also researching comes across better so very much in this theme of you know how do we train well so that some of our so that the academic writing trouble remains just that trouble which will always be there and there aren't all these other complicating factors around it right so i mean looking through your professional life do you do you see a uh, a repeating pattern of, of some one or other trouble, which needn't be there. You know, if we did things, organize things better, Mm. people would be studying better. People would be publishing better.
0: I think it comes back to that question of, of listening. Um, Most people write to the computer screen. They write perhaps to their supervisor, but they don't actually have a concept of an audience uh, of an audience beyond that, um, or that audience is so huge and diffuse, everybody in the whole wide world. I'm like, well, I really don't think that everybody in the whole wide world is particularly interested in this very technical paper on, you know, electromagnetic, um, you know, frequencies. There are people who care about this, but you need to identify who those people are and then write to them. Um, expect those people to listen to you. Uh, maybe go, when you're at conferences, go and talk to those people and see how, when you explain things in one way, they really get it. And when you explain them in another way, they really don't. Uh, and then use that way that works in your writing. So really, I think that sense of who am I writing for? Who is read this work? Who is going to be communicated to? Who is my audience? Um and the more intimately that audience uh, is known, the, the better that's going to be. So, um, you know, when you really got, and so I often suggest that people pick two people. Of course, if you're thinking about doctoral examiners, then you, you pretty much have a good idea of who those people might be. But, you know, one really senior person in the field who you really would like to impress and one up-and-coming researcher who you, you know, really love to collaborate with, if you write your your paper in a way that both those people can read and understand and will be really excited by, so many other people will also be able to benefit from the paper. Uh, but if you write the paper only for yourself or sort of for no one, then the paper will, will really struggle to connect because it's never tried to do the work of connection. But human beings are so good at talking to other human beings. So the moment we start to go, oh, the point of this uh, paper, the point of this thesis, the point of this book chapter, whatever it is, is to communicate with a person just like this, suddenly so many of the problems about how to communicate what, how to say things, how to take a stand, how to have a voice, how to structure things, what order needs to go in, what needs to be included, what's my scope, what evidence do I need to include, how do I uh, defend myself against other, um, you know, potential criticism, all of that, we know how to solve it because human beings' great strength is that they communicate really well with other human beings. Um, And I think if we could Put that at the center of our writing training, of our science communication training of I think that would just solve you know a huge number uh, of the challenges that people face um, that are extraneous to the question of how do I explain this thing that has never existed in the world before? And suddenly I need to find language uh, to explain it to people who, have um, uh, going to have to understand this thing that yeah they're just completely new
1: well thank you very very much for that catherine especially those last <laughs> words that's that's perfect um, that that is catherine firth university of melbourne and thanks also to you my listeners bye-bye and until next time here on scholarly communication